0: Hi, my name is Jess, I serve as one of the leaders here at The Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at The Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. So today we continue this long story short message series. Today is actually the last week uh, that we will be here before we jump back into John. um, This is the last kind of reflection that I wanted to show as we look at the story of the Israelites really being fulfilled in Jesus. And so we're going to be today in Exodus. Exodus is that second book of the Bible. Uh, we'll be in chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. Um, man, I uh, am so excited just to be here and open the Word of God with you. Uh, and I just want to remind us, and I say it, try to say it every week. Sometimes I forget, but as we go through this time, I want us to do two things. First, I want us to see and hear and know Jesus better as we look through scripture today. But I also want us to remember that scripture should also illuminate the fact that God sees us and hears us and knows us. And so uh, as we go through today, let's try to balance both of those things. So when I was uh, a young lad i sometimes fell into the wrong crowd now i i wasn't with the the like the really wrong crowd uh, i was mainly with the wrong church kid crowd uh, i was the the one that um the The youth pastor on trips would always know where I was and who I was with. Uh, you know, I was the one where they were they were always trying to figure out where I was when I you know because I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Uh, I always there there was always an, a, a target on my back because of who my parents were or who my grandparents were, but mainly because of who I was and what I did. And I remember there was a trip that we used to take when I was uh, in youth group in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We would go. To the Jersey Shore, and uh, we'd go there every every year. Um, and one year, for some reason, oh, it was raining. That's what happened. I have. I, I forgot until this moment. One year, it was raining, so we couldn't go out onto the beach. So we drove into Philadelphia, and we went to this mall. Um, and in this mall, there was a fish market. And so the guys that I were uh, was hanging out with, we thought it would be funny to go and buy a big old fish, uh, at this fish market and bring it on the bus and, you know, creep out girls and, you know, slap people with fish. Like we just thought it would be funny. So we did it. So we bought bought this fish. Um, and we, we, you know, we would like, you know, bring it in our shirt and like show it to people and freak people out. And, you know, just, it was, it was really gross and juvenile for sure. Um, But uh, after the bus, I, to this day, this is my story. I am sticking to it. I am not lying to you. This is how it went. After we got off the bus, I don't know what happened to that fish. I had nothing to do with the fish. Andrew Bales, if you ever happened to hear this sermon, it was not me. I was not involved with where this fish went next. So we were all staying in one cabin, right? That's, that's you know, how, how we kind of do it. Guys in one cabin, girls in another. And again, I don't know what happened to the fish. But the next day, it was beautiful. It was warm. It was sunny. So we go out. Uh, to the beach, and we're having a great day. We come back, we change, we go back to the boardwalk that night. And by the time we got back to the cabin, y'all, something stank. Something was disgusting. And here's the deal. I had nothing to do with why it stunk, but I knew what was going on right like I didn't I didn't do anything with this fish, but I knew we bought a fish it smells like dead dang, decaying fish in here. I probably know what happened and so because I knew something was gonna go on and I mean our youth pastor was real angry like what who knows da, da, da. and like you know like hellfire is about to rain down and I'm like, well, like it's gonna happen either way. But if I can just like at least get the fish smell out, right? Like at least we can, you know, sleep at night and they won't, we won't, ha- won't have to plug our own noses. And so uh, I, I told them, I said, I, I think there's a fish somewhere in here. Because why do, you know? why do you know there's a fish? I was like, look, I didn't have anything to do with it. But I know that someone purchased a fish in Philadelphia. It was on the bus, and it probably is somewhere. They found it under someone's mattress. Uh, it had been under there uh, at this point now almost two days, um, and it stunk Bad. You can't air that out easily, you know, because you put teenage boy funk on top of decaying fish funk, and it's bad, right? But we all knew there was something wrong because something smelled, right? And again, I had nothing to do with it. I will go to my grave saying, I don't know where that fish was. Uh, I just knew there was a fish. What does that have to do with today's story? Well, I'm glad you asked because... I love telling stories, but I love it when it connects well. We all knew something was wrong because there was a smell, right? And you know that when you open your refrigerator and there's a smell, you're like, well, something has turned, right? You, you know, when you pick up a baby and something smells, you're like, well, okay, something is loaded, right? Like you, like you know, like bad smells, God designed us to know that bad smells aren't good, right? They alert us, smells alert us to things, And so today we're going to explore what happens to the Israelites when something stank in their camp, all right? Now, how we got here, if you've been with us, great, but just to kind of give you a quick overview of where we've gone, this all started way back with a man named Abram. Abram was made a promise by God that he would make of him a great nation, and then that great nation would be a blessing to every other nation on earth. Then Abram, his, whose name was changed to Abraham, was finally gifted a son after he tried to make it happen his own with someone who wasn't his wife, who wasn't the wife that God had given him. Uh, and he had a son named Ishmael. Well, that's not the son that God chose. God chose the second son, a man named Isaac. And Isaac grew up and he had two sons, one named Jacob, one named Esau. Esau was the older one, but there was a prophecy that. When Isaac's wife was pregnant, God gave, that said, it won't be your older son, it will be the younger son that will, will be the one that is served. The older son will serve the younger son. That didn't happen in those days. And, and this, this son, his name was Jacob, his name literally means deceiver, and he was a person who was very deceitful. And we discovered that even though he was deceitful, and even though his brother wanted to kill him because he had stolen his brother's birthright, God still granted him grace as Jacob is running away from his brother's murderous intents. God showed him grace there, showed him grace enough that the whole people of Israel would actually be named after him. And God would also identify himself as the God of Abraham, as the God of Isaac, and of God, the God of Jacob, the deceiver. But God is a God who hold, keeps his promises. And so we can follow this line of promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. He has two sons by the wife he loves and 10 from the wife he just kind of has. And one of those sons, a man named Joseph, was hated by all of his brothers and because of it was sold into slavery. But what man intended for evil, God intended for good. And through that slavery in Egypt, Joseph was able to raise to the highest level, you know, the highest position in Egypt. Probably at that point, one of the highest positions in the world, right next to Pharaoh. And he was there specifically so that God could save his people because there was a famine that was coming. And that famine was going to affect Jacob's family. And Jacob's family ends up being saved by this boy who is now a man who had been sold into slavery, left for dead, who everything had gone wrong for, but God had guided his path. And then the Israelites just multiplied. As they moved into Egypt, they multiplied and multiplied, and the Egyptians said, oh, whoa, we cannot let these guys get out of control. They're going to take over. So instead of kicking them out, they enslaved them. And then God rose a man named Moses, and Moses had been saved and spared from being sacrificed as a child when uh, population control was ordered by Pharaoh. He was raised in Pharaoh's household and ran away, and God called him back to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. So Moses went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused over and over and over but God gave grace to Pharaoh and gave grace to Egypt by sending plague after plague after plague that didn't destroy them like he could have but he sent plagues to try to get them to do what was right and they didn't and finally God sent the plague of death every firstborn in that land of Egypt was killed and that finally got Pharaoh to do what was right so pharaoh let the egyptian or sorry let the israelites go but really soon after they're gone pharaoh's like no no we made a mistake what did we do why did we let these dudes go and so they start to chase after israel and god knows that the egyptians are coming and god says hey my grace has reached its max now my judgment will come on pharaoh and on his armies and so god tells the israelites to turn around from where they are to go backwards and to wedge themselves between the Egyptian army and a sea. And last week we saw that God said, I've got this, and used the most unusual strategy of splitting a sea down the middle so that the Israelites could walk on dry land, asking Moses to raise his stick and raise his hand and be able to open and close this sea And through the most unusual of strategies, God saved his people. So these people have seen God, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's judgment, right? In fact, right before God saved them at the Red Sea, they grumbled and they complained. They said, Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here so that we could die here in the wilderness? You should have just let us go back into slavery. But then God saves them. So they learned their lesson, right? They passed the test. Let's read, because that was chapter 14. Chapter 15 is them worshiping God. Chapter 16 is the next chapter of the story. Let's read, starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if, there, oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Moses also said, "You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses told Moses told Aaron, "Say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling." While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. The first thing that I want us to take away from this passage is the theme that we explored last week. It's the fact that God will not share his glory. God could have provided from Israel in any way, but he chose to do so in a way that would prove who he is and beyond contestation that he was the one who did it. He does this for two reasons. First, he does it because he truly does love Israel. We can't forget that God is love and that his love for his people knows no bounds. God is also jealous, and he also wants us to know that he is our source, and he is our Lord. So what he does here is show us two sides of his character that seemingly seem to be at odds with each other. As a human, it's impossible to be about our own glory and to be fully loving. In fact, we can't even fathom how that's possible. But here, God's showing how far above us he is. He's showing how his ways are not our ways. God's glory is paramount but also is his love for people. And only God can have two things be paramount, which that word literally means more important than anything else. God can be fully jealous, fully loving, fully just, fully wrathful, fully merciful, and a million other things simultaneously, at the same time. But something that he can never be is someone who will share his glory. Because he is Yahweh. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. But here we see the Israelites doing the same thing that we saw them do last week. Things get rough and they start complaining. They have seen the glory of God firsthand multiple times and yet they still complain. So, how does God solve this? Let's look at verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered up the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it was the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent." Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone who had gathered just as much as they needed. Guys, that's amazing. They went out, think about blueberry picking. I go out and I, I get a whole bucket full. You go out, and you just pick 10, 20 blueberries. Or well, when we get back, I've got way more than I need, and you probably don't have, you don't have enough, right? But what we he, read in the story is when they got back to the camp, the one that had the bucket and the one that had a little bit, it was no more than they needed and no less than they needed. It, it doesn't make sense. Only God could do that. And even though God was not probably super thrilled with the Israelites, he still met their need. He gave them exactly what they needed. And he gave them exactly what they needed in a way that only he could have done it. The truth that I want us to pull from here is that God will provide exactly what we need. See, he could have brought them game so they could hunt, right? He could have just had animals coming and told them, hey, Here's how provide it provided for you. He could have made crops pop up from the ground. He could have teleported them to the promised land. He also could have just sustained them on no food, right? He could have just said, here, you don't need food until you get to the promised land. But he had a plan. And that pro- plan provided for every person just as much as they needed. It reminds me, coincidentally, of Jesus feeding the 17,000 people at the beginning of John 6. John 6. They were all hungry, and instead of telling them to fend for themselves or sending them away, Jesus creates food. That time, he used bread and fish, and he multiplied it, but this time, he literally just makes food cover the ground. He provides enough for everyone according to their need out of his abundant grace, just like Jesus did thousands of years later. God is still providing for us today, friends, if you didn't know. Maybe not in the way that we liked it. Maybe there were some, you know, God was providing then, and and maybe uh, there were some vegans in the Israelites, and they weren't real pleased that they had to eat quail at night, right? But either way, the truth is that God provides for those he loves. Maybe he provides in miraculous ways like these, or maybe it's just in mundane ways. Maybe it's a raise at work, instead of a promotion. It won't let you get that new Tesla that you were eyeing, but it keeps gas in that old Camry that's been pretty reliable for you, yeah? Maybe it's a friend who invites you over to come and work in their garden because you've been lonely and isolated, but really you wanted them to invite you out on their boat because you thought that would be a lot of fun. Maybe it's an extra credit assignment in your seminary class that your teacher gives you instead of magically changing your failing test grades. Or maybe it's just that he's provided you with someone in your sphere that knows enough to tutor you in the class if you would just ask. Sometimes God's provision is just as simple as that. Sometimes his provision is just as simple as the ability to provide for ourselves. There are many vulnerable people who can't work and provide for themselves. So the, the ability to work and provide for ourselves is provision in and of itself. But we don't often see it that way. It should be of particular interest to us that if we're familiar with John 6, or if you were with us when we were going through John chapter 6 a few weeks back, that the Jews bring up this very story to Jesus. They do it the day after he has just fed 17,000 people. And they ask for another sign that what he said was true. And then they said, hey, even Moses gave us manna from, gave our ancestors manna from heaven. It's so interesting that grumbling and complaining surround both of these stories. It's no coincidence that God fed the Israelites in both stories, giving them exactly what they needed. And then the next day, they show a lack of faith. Chapter uh, sixteen, verse nineteen says this: Then Moses said to them, "No one is to keep any of it until morning." However, some of their paid some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Y'all, you know, God had just made food appear out of nowhere, and what's their response? Unbelief. Just like in John six, they had one job: trust that God would provide, and they failed. And when they did, it started to smell in the camp. Literally, the food that they had received by no work of their own hand, and had been promised that would, the food would return by no merit of theirs, they kept it, and they started. It started to smell full of maggots friends our lack of faith stinks this is so true when god provides for us we forget or we neglect or we refuse to trust him we refuse to trust that he can do it again and we have the stench of rot and the rot of the rot of sin on our lives when we refuse to trust him we have this stench of unbelief surrounding us. I want you to imagine this scenario. There's miraculous provision and it's met with immediate unbelief. This is a complete refusal to believe God by a people who have seen God do amazing things. A God who had made a covenant with them. A God who had made a promise to preserve them and to bless them. But friends, We are so much the same. Not only has God provided the ultimate provision for us in Jesus, but he also continually provides for us over and over again, showing his faithfulness in so many ways. We have been brought out of the bondage of sin and the rot of spiritual death, and yet we so often, instead of trusting in that freedom and that grace, we hold on to our our supposed ability to save ourselves. Like the Israelites hoarding manna, we hoard good works and self-righteousness, hoping that it will save us even as the smell of filthy rags and rotting souls fills the camp. Worship in the Old Testament included the burning of oil and frankincense that offered a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Yet now our lack of trust in Him offers a much different smell. Friend, something in our lives stinks. Surrender to God for the Israelites looked like not keeping food overnight and trusting that God would provide for them in the morning. For us, total surrender looks like giving up our dreams, our goals, our rights, and our works to trust in Him and His plans for our lives and our righteousness. We hold so tightly to our plans and work so hard to make sure that we don't even need God. For those of us who haven't put our faith in Jesus, we work to find a way to earn good karma, or we pursue happiness and pleasure. And if we're honest, we strive because something in our life just stinks. That stink is the stench of death that hangs over every road that doesn't lead to Jesus. It's the stench of decay of earthly and temporary things. It's the stench of a world that will pass away. In John 6, Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life and that anyone who consumes him, and he he explains that consuming him meant to believe in him. Anyone who consumes him, anyone who believes in him will be saved from death and they will live forever. There will be no rot of stench of death on them. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus or you don't know how, I'd love to talk to you about that. We see one more big step of faith that God would ask of the Israelites, and I think this is actually the hardest one. Verse 21 says, each morning everyone gathered as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away, it being the manna. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be the day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it to morning. So they saved it until the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. It seems like an interesting aside in the middle of all of this. But this whole passage is about trusting in God, right? Right? The whole passage is about, will you follow the Lord's instructions? And one of the commands that God gave to the Israelites and to us is the command to rest. Friends, we so often think that Sabbath was for God so we, we could observe worship. That turned us into using our worship as like a, a checklist item. As, a, as long as we clocked in at church, we fulfilled that Sabbath command. But God is really, really clear that Sabbath was never for Him. It was for us. He even modeled it for us when, after creating the whole earth, He rested. Sabbath is about rest, Sabbath is about not doing. It was never about a a checklist, it was about a stop. Jews today still take this very seriously. We actually found out that one of our neighbors is Jewish when we invited her to come to our neighborhood cookout on a Saturday. And she wrote us a note and said, we we observe Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, so we can't come. We also have dietary restrictions. And I thought it was so beautiful. Want to talk about taking God's commands seriously? Seriously? We often can't be bothered to to stop and rest because we have just too much to do. Some of us, it's really good stuff that we have to do. Some of it's really necessary. We think we can't stop or everything will fall apart or we'll come up short or we won't have enough. But we forget that it was not God's suggestion to rest. It was God's command to rest. Because the truth is, friends, Sabbath proves God can do more with less. God will do more in the six days that you work when you honor your Sabbath than you could ever possibly do in seven. I battle this in my own life. I feel like if I'm not hustling and figuring out how to accomplish our church's mission and vision, it just won't be accomplished I feel like if I don't take every possible chance to make more money when it comes along, uh, that I won't be able to, to give my girls the life that they deserve, even if it means I work 12 to 14-hour days, seven days a week. It all comes down to the fact that I just don't trust God to do what He said. I don't trust that God knows what's best for me. I feel like I have to do it because no one else will. Not even God. And guys, my unbelief stinks to God. In front of all of you, I ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry that I have not modeled Sabbath rest for you. Even though I talk about it often, I don't live it. I have to trust that God can do more with less because that's what he said. We as a church, we practice rest in December, in early January. After Christmas Eve, Eve, we'll take two Sundays off, and we won't meet for worship, and we won't hold events. We rest. Could we miss out on people coming to church for a Christmas service? Yeah, we probably do. But we trust that God can do more in 50 services than we could ever do in 52. It was a command for us to stop and rest, because rest is really important. God knows what's best. It's probably best to listen. The passage ends like this. The people of Israel called the bread manna. Manna literally means, what is it? They, they named this bread, what is it? Because when they asked, when they saw it, they asked, what is It, it makes sense. It was, it was white like coriander seed and tastes like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So friends, they took the very provision of God and you know, they, where they took this manna, at first they were just kind of carrying it around. Eventually, when God would give the instructions for how to build the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a box that had very specific instructions of how it would build, how it would look, how it would be carried, because God's very presence would actually dwell in that box. You know what that box contained? Manna. It contained the manna that they brought because they wanted for generations people to remember that God provided. It also provi- it, it, it would contain the Ten Commandments, the tablets in the Ten Commandments that were broken by uh, Moses when the Israelites didn't trust in God again. It would also have the rod of Aaron that would end up budding to prove that God was who he was because the Israelites didn't trust again. There's a lot of reminders in this box, okay? It was literally the box with a The glory of God, the presence of God dwelt. God gives this command because we forget quickly what he has done for us. Really quickly. And here's the deal. I talk about God's provision, and I believe firmly that God does provide for us and that he can provide for us In health, that he can provide for us in finances, he can provide for us in relationships and in in housing and in jobs and all of these things. But you know what? He doesn't always. In fact, if he never provides anything for us ever again, he provided enough in Jesus. We don't deserve anything from him. We didn't deserve Jesus, right? But Jesus came and gave his life for us. And so when we begin to to suffer when the the checkbook starts to get a little tight, when when the car starts to get a little old, when the house starts to fall apart, and we're like, God, where's your provision? God, how are you gonna provide? Maybe he does, and I think he loves us enough that he often intervenes. But he doesn't have to. He already has. He already took our grave clothes off of us and put on the clothes of righteousness, of his own righteousness on us, so that that rot and that stink of death and sin is gone. But God has provided for us, not just Jesus, but he has provided over and over and over again. This building is one of the biggest examples of that. I'm friends with church planters all over and I don't know any that haven't been here a decade that have a building and yet here we are a humble small church just fledgling, just starting out we have a beautiful building with which we get to meet we have a beautiful building that we we get to allow other churches to come and worship in, that foster kids get to come and learn about arts and music, they get to watch a movie later this month, they get to do all of these things here because of God's faithfulness Because God did it. God raised the money to build it. God raised the money to tear it apart and rebuild it. God did it. So friends, this is the question I want us to leave with. What do you need to make a record of so that you will remember what God has done for you? What what is the manna that you need to put in the Ark of the Covenant? What is the thing that you need to write down, that you need to put On your bathroom mirrors, I just remembered when we moved here to Federal Way and things were hard and Jess was working a lot and we didn't know what was going on. I was working in Seattle. She was working in Seattle. I was trying to figure out if I could even lead a church and I I didn't know anyone here and I I knew that people already didn't like me and that when I was coming here and and it was just all of this going on. I, I had all of these things going on in my heart and head and Jess wrote on our bathroom mirror, we are living answered prayers. We were living answered prayers. And now you only get to see those letters when it's foggy, right? When I'm <laughs> taking too long of a shower. Those, those things are gone. But man, that just, that just hit me. That was a record that we kept in our house. To remember what God has done for us? What is the record that you need to write down, that you need to engrave, that you need to to indelibly etch into your mind to remind you that God provides? Because if we don't, we'll be like the Israelites and we're going to forget. Let's pray.